prayer for you. But Daniel chapter 5, if you'll turn there, as we continue our journey through the book of Daniel. So much feedback on how people are being blessed by this study. And the Lord wants to continue to bless our hearts as we move into chapter 5. Now, we know if you've been with us in our study of Daniel that the Babylonian Empire would rise to world domination and uh, under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, who came into Judah in 605 B.C. He sieged the city of Jerusalem. It was the first of three uh, deportations uh, of him coming into Jerusalem. Uh, the first one in 605 B.C. is he took the temple treasures back to Babylon, as well as the finest and brightest young men of Judah, to be used in serving Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. We saw that in chapter 1. What is interesting, as many of you know, that that was prophesied by Isaiah over a hundred years before that time. You read about that in Isaiah chapter 39. But before we continue, let's, let's pray. Lord, help us to be settled in our seats. To, we want to remember that um, as we hear the word of God going forth for the next few moments, we want to have our ringers off our phones. We want to be settled in our seats. We want to have a soft heart and open ears to hear from you. Lord, we know the handwriting's on the wall. And you want to use us as we get summons to come out to interpret it to people that don't know you. And Lord, I pray that this lesson would touch our hearts in a deep way. This account here that happened 2,500 years ago, is written down in your word, preserved for all eternity. Lord, to edify us, to encourage us, to build us up. So we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in Isaiah chapter 39, I'll, I'll read it to you. Hezekiah was the king 100 years before the Babylonian captivity began, the 70 years in 605 BC, Hezekiah is the king. And what had happened is the Assyrians at that time, who had taken the 10 northern tribes off into captivity, the house of Israel, 722 BC, that they make their way to Jerusalem. They come up to Jerusalem, and Shennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, he's hurling threats at Hezekiah, who's a, a godly king. And they're about ready to destroy Jerusalem and take them away captive. And all of a sudden, as Hezekiah is hearing it, he does, and the leaders go to the house of the Lord, and, and they seek the Lord. Well, that night, an angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That would begin the decline of the Assyrian Empire. Well, in the east, there's an empire beginning to rise up to power. And in chapter 39 of Isaiah, as you read it, it's a short chapter, that the envoys from Babylon at that time come to see Hezekiah. They congratulate him on a healing that he received from the Lord. And they come, and, and Hezekiah, as they bring him gifts and kind of butter him up, he shows them all the treasures of the house of the Lord. And Isaiah comes to him and says, who are these guys? Well, they're envoys that came to see me to congratulate me on my healing. And, and they're from a little empire called Babylon there in the east. And Isaiah said, what did you show them? And Hezekiah says, I showed them everything. 
And what those envoys were doing at that time is they were recording everything that they saw to take back to Babylon so they knew that the treasures that were there in the house of the Lord before they came in in 605 B.C. And it was Isaiah that would say to to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts as I read it to you, that behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away some of your sons and will descend from you whom you will beget. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So that takes place as we read in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was one of those young men who were taken away captive. And he's just a young teenager, as, as most of you know, when he's a captive of Babylon, never to see his home again. But the Lord was in his heart. And even though he was offered the king's wine and meat, that it was Daniel that was determined and purpose in his heart to follow after God, to not to defile his heart. And that's why the book of Daniel is such an incredible, amazing book. Because not only of the amazing prophecies that we're going to look at in the second half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, but we see that it's very practical as we look at the person of Daniel. He, he teaches us about having an excellent spirit and being dedicated to the Lord. And so as we've looked at the first four chapters of Daniel, we have seen that Daniel has been used by the Lord in a powerful way. And he was used to minister to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And last week we saw the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, a testimony that he writes to the world. Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his reign, full of pride, and, and he has a dream, and Daniel told him the interpretation of the dream, that you're going to be humbled, Nebuchadnezzar, repent and turn to the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't. And a year later, he's humbled. He, he goes insane, and for seven years, and Daniel protected him, continued to pray for him. And after that seven years, Nebuchadnezzar comes out of that insanity and inactivity. And we know that it would be Nebuchadnezzar that gave that testimony as we read last week. And he writes it in the first person. And at the end of chapter 4, that now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So God humbled Nebuchadnezzar in the lesson that we learned and an encouragement for all of us is the Nebuchadnezzars that we know in life that God is able to humble them and God is able to, to reach them and you keep praying for them because I believe that Daniel for 30 years prayed for Nebuchadnezzar. He continued to pray for him when he's out there in the field clawing like an animal and insane and he comes to his sanity and he says that the God of heaven He's my God now, and that his kingdom will last forever. It's no longer my kingdom will last forever, the, the golden image he made out there in the plain of Dura. But he recognizes that there's one God who raises kings up and puts them down. So that was a, a fascinating portion of scripture. Now as we move into Daniel chapter 5, the event that we're going to read about, it is the year 539 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has died. Matter of fact, he died of natural causes some 23 years before the event of Daniel chapter 5. And with the death of Nebuchadnezzar, 
the kingdom began to experience turmoil, began to decline in power. Nebuchadnezzar, he is replaced by evil Merodach. You read about him in 2 Kings chapter 25. How would you like to have that name, evil Merodach? He ruled for two years until he was murdered by his brother-in-law, Nerglasser. Nerglasser married to his sister, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Now, Nerglasser, he ruled Babylon for about four years, and he died of natural causes. His son then comes to the throne, Labashai Marduk, and he ruled only for a couple months, and he's beaten to death. And then Nabonidus, he ends up, another daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, he's rules for the next 17 years until the Medes and the Persians take Babylon captive, which we're going to read about what happened and how it happened here in Daniel chapter 5. We do read in verse 1 of the chapter that Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now you might be thinking, if you were paying attention, you might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, you better check your notes because you just said that, that Nabonidus, that he was the king at this time. Well, Daniel chapter 5 here in verse 1 tells us that it was Belshazzar that's the king. So what's going on here? Well, there's a simple explanation for it. Nabonidus had a son, Belshazzar. Same one mentioned here in verse 1. Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So for many years, the skeptics and the doubters of the book of Daniel and of the Bible, they said that Daniel chapter 5 was wrong. It's not reliable. You can't trust it. And we know that it was Nabonidus that was the king at this time. And Belshazzar, there is no Belshazzar. And as we know that what happened was in the 1930s that this well-known archaeologist, Sir Rollison, He's excavating near the area of Babylon at the palace of Shushan, and he found some interesting tablets. And on that tablet, he found the name Belshazzar. He also found what was called the Nabonibus Cylinder, in, which is in the British Museum in London. If you ever go to London and go to the British Museum, you could spend days going through that museum, but it's there on display. And the Babylonian records tell us this that Belshazzar did indeed exist. He was the elder son of Nabonidus and became co-ruler in the third year of Nabonidus, and he would continue in that capacity until this time, 539 B.C. And the reason that he was co-ruler with his father is because Nabonidus was leading the troops engaged in military battles. Also, it tells us that he spent a lot of time in Arabia. So as Nabonidus is leading the troops, trying to defeat this empire that's rising up that had a huge army, uh, they're going to be likened the bear that lumbered along with two million men, and they would just take over Babylon. But Belshazzar, he would be left behind back in Babylon, taking care of the everyday affairs of the kingdom. We see that Daniel once again shows us that he's very precise. And the Bible is very accurate as they continue to dig. And every time the archaeologists, you know, they dig up something, it confirms what the Bible has to say. So keep in mind that the Bible, that the word of God is inspired. It is accurate historically. And we know that to be true. Now, a little bit about the city of Babylon. It was an amazing city. 
It is believed that the walls of Babylon were over 300 feet high, had about 200 towers. Matter of fact, these massive walls and, uh, that surrounded Babylon, it was a doubled wall city. Now, on the outside, the huge walls, Herodotus, the Greek historian called the father of history, he says that the walls were about 335 feet tall, 85 feet wide, uh, enough wide enough for four chariots to race around. And there are others that, that record, like uh, Alexander, the ancient historian, that says that the walls were higher than 150 feet. So it's hard to tell exactly how tall the walls were, but there's sources that they were over 300 feet high. They had a huge iron gates to get into the city. They would lock them whenever there was any threat or they wanted to lock the gates. And also the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River would run, a major river that, that you hear about today. Of course, the modern country of Iraq runs through Iraq. But the Euphrates River runs from the north to the south. And it would come into the city, ancient city of Babylon, would go under that large wall. Again, had 200 towers on top of it, over 300 feet high. And it had these iron bars that, these soup gates is what they would call it, they would have down into the water so no one could get underneath there, and the water would flow through. Once it passed the wall, then they had a moat that they built around the ancient city of Babylon, and then they had an inner wall on the other side of that moat. And there as the river was, was diverted, it surrounded the city, and there was a walkway. They had buildings they believe was very beautiful. And of course, they had the hanging gardens there in Babylon that was four to 500 feet tall. It could be seen for miles because the geographic area is fairly flat. So that's what was going on. That's how uh, Babylon was built. And then the river would flow in the south, out on the south side of the city. Well, as here is the watchman that would be on this night of Daniel chapter 5, that they would be looking out. And as they looked out on top of those tall walls, they would see the Medes and the Persians surrounding them. At this time, on this night of Daniel chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians had formed this military alliance. They were conquering Babylon's cities and territories. And now they're going for the capital. And they had surrounded the city of Babylon. And they had the audacity to think that they could take the city. Matter of fact, it is told that Cyrus, now you can read the end of chapter 44 of the book of Isaiah, the beginning of chapter 45, and Isaiah prophesied, named Cyrus by name, 200 years before this time here. Cyrus, first king of the Medes and the Persians. And here he is leading the troops that come against the city of Babylon. And in chapter 44 and 45 of Isaiah, it tells us that God calls Cyrus his servant. And it tells us how he took the city as well. And also prophesied that he would make the decree that the Jews could go back to 70 years of captivity or over, and they could go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's all predicted, all prophesied by Isaiah, written down, Cyrus by name, 200 years before the event happened. So as here, 
is Cyrus. He comes to the city, and as he's there, he's discouraged. He thought there's no way to get into the city, and, and so he was about ready to leave and abandon any attempt to get into the city of Babylon. And what we are told is that there were two Babylonian defectors that came out of the city to him and began to talk with him. They didn't talk with Belshazzar. So he decides that, hey, I'm going to figure a way to get into the city. And what he does is this. The Cyrus divides his army into three divisions. One division went to the south of the city where the Euphrates River flowed out of the city through this channel that, that had, again, those iron bars so that no one could get in. And one division went to the north of the city on that side and where the Euphrates rivers would flow into the city. And then further north of that, there was a large division that Cyrus had, and this is what he did. It was quite an engineering feat. He began to divert the flow of the Euphrates River into this lowland. And it became a swamp. And the level of the river dropped so dramatically that then Cyrus and his troops were able to walk underneath the wall, underneath those soup gates, and then to the south as well, walk underneath the wall. Isaiah prophesied that the gates would be open, and apparently the inner wall, the gates were open, and they walked right into the city, and they took the city without really a battle going on at all. So that's what happens on this night. And we'll talk more about it next week when we finish the chapter. Now, Bonadus at this time, they believe, has already been taken captive. And here is his son, locked safely, at least he thought he was, in the city of Babylon. And he's having this party and a great feast with a thousand of his lords. As we read in verse 1, that Belshazzar the king made a great feast of a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of a thousand there. And as we read this, we see that as the wine is flowing freely, why was he doing this? There's his concubines that are there and his wives. You know there's carnality and sin going on. I think that the reason that Belshazzar is doing this is because he's showing the leaders that he wasn't worried about the Medes and the Persians knocking on the door. You know, most of the world's parties are about covering up something that's going on deep inside. Not wanting to deal with the reality of what is coming down. Covering up problems that are knocking on the door in life. So the question that we're to ask ourselves this morning while we're here the question to ask is, are you putting up a wall? Are you putting up a wall? Not wanting to deal with something that you know that the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart about. That he's dealing with you. Maybe there's sin or carnality that he wants you to turn away from. Maybe there's something he wants you to do that you say this is difficult. An attitude that he wants you to put aside, whatever the case may be. And then on the other side of the spectrum is this. Are there walls that you are facing that you get discouraged and you want to surrender? You want to walk away from what God would have you to do. These huge walls did not keep God out from working and using Cyrus to get into the city. And in Numbers chapter 13, the children of Israel, God had given them a promise that I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. 
In the second year of the Exodus, Moses comes up to the border of the promised land. He sends 12 spies into the land for 40 days. They come back with these great big grapes and fruit. And, and they said, it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord said. But we can't go into the land because there's giants in the land. And there's huge cities with huge walls. We're going to die out here in the wilderness. And it was Joshua and Caleb that said, no, the Lord promised us this land. He'll defeat those giants. He'll help us take over those cities. He's given us the land of milk and honey as an inheritance. But the people murmured and they would cry and they would want to stone Moses and say, let's go back to Egypt. They spent 40 years out there in the wilderness because of their unbelief and disobedience. And I think that a lot of Christians just do another lap around Mount Sinai and a lot of their lives because of disobedience or unbelief, not believing the Lord's promises. Just a dry, you know, walk with the Lord, feeling spiritually dry and distant from Him. There's no situation that you may be facing that is too difficult for God to work where his promise isn't true, where he sees you and he's with you and desires to work on your behalf and show himself strong on your behalf. So be encouraged that the Lord is working. He would say to Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me, Jeremiah? Of course, the answer is no. There's nothing too difficult for him. So as we read this, we see and continue reading in verse 2, that while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which he had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. The king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and of wood. 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had brought back the holy vessels from Solomon's temple to his temple in Babylon. And here it is nearly 70 years later that Belshazzar orders that those vessels be brought out, distributed among the crowds, the cups, the bowls, and, and those things that were dedicated and sanctified to the Lord for the use of the Lord in Solomon's temple. Now they're being used to toast to the pagan gods of Babylon. The gold, the silver, the wood and stone. Same thing happens today. A whole lot of toasting going on to the God of gold and silver and wood and stone. Even in the church, we've seen it come in. It's been a very popular doctrine. The prosperity movement has come into the church. Where God, you know, is treated like a celestial Santa Claus. Uh, he's some kind of genie. You can rub the lamp if you say the right words or whatever that he wants you to be wealthy. And you just need to speak and have enough faith and you can have the homes and the cars or whatever it might be. Listen, it's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin if God has blessed you. He's blessed you monetarily, economically. But when we begin to toast to the gold and the silver and the money and the prestige and the popularity and all of this to pursue the world, then it's a problem. It is Paul that wrote to Timothy and said it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Luke's Gospel would write, Take heed to yourselves 
Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Belshazzar and these lords and his governmental officials, and they're not watching. The Medes and the Persians are right outside, and they're having this party like nothing's going to happen to us. And the Lord in his word tells you and me that we are to be watching, not to be weighed down to where our hearts are not really desiring to live for the Lord, even though we have the handwriting on the wall. I see the things that are going on around us that the Bible speaks of, that the last days will be perilous times. I see the birth pangs that are getting worse and worse, that are pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ and that our redemption draws near. I see the events that are going on around the world. We're going to talk more specifically about it as we go through the prophecies of Daniel that tell us that his kingdom is going to be established and the Lord's going to come for his church very soon, I believe. And the handwriting's on the wall there in Babylon and Babylon is going to be taken. And we know that Babylon today is going to go down. Man's kingdom and God's kingdom is going to last forever. You can read Revelation chapter 18 that those who had a love for gold and silver and the merchandise, those who became wealthy, they saw Babylon destroyed in one hour. And the day in which we are living in, none of us, listen, are to be toasting to the God of silver and gold and be so enamored with the world and status and popularity and all of this. Is something that we all have to guard against. Rather than saying in our hearts that, Lord, I see the handwriting on the wall. And I know everything in this world is going to come to an end. And what I do for you is what's going to last. And I see the things going on around us. And, Lord, I desire to just have a heart for you and to live for you. I know that your kingdom is going to be established. And I do want to be thankful for what you have provided and what you've blessed me with and be good stewards of it and invest in your kingdom. Don't be like the rich fool that the parable that Jesus talked about who said, I'm going to tear down my barns and just build bigger barns and I will build bigger barns and I will store up my grain and I will take my rest and I will take my ease. He had an eye problem. It was, I, 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 I'm going to live for myself. And the problem wasn't, and the tragedy wasn't that he had more grain. Jesus said the tragedy was this, that he laid up treasures for himself. He wasn't rich towards God. He only lived for himself. So I pray that whether God has blessed you with gold and silver, or you don't have two dimes to rub together at the end of the month, that whatever he's blessed you with, that you would be a good steward of what God has given to you. That you invest in the kingdom with your devotion, with your gifts and your abilities, financially, whatever the case might be. And so here is, is 
this party, drinking wine, the Feast of a Thousand, saying that we're not worried about the Medes and the Persians. And here's Belshazzar mocking God and drinking from those holy vessels to the gods of Babylon. And as we read in verse 5, that in the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster on the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Here is this party, all the drinking, the toasting to the Babylonian gods of gold and silver, and all of a sudden, the fingers of a man's hand appears. It's the finger of God, writing on the wall behind the king. And the king sobers up real quick. Didn't need coffee. His countenance changed. He turned pale. I'm sure he has this terrified look on his face. I, I think he probably doesn't have the strength to stand up. The joints of his hips were loosed. Means he had an accident in front of everybody. Needed a diaper. And he's so terrified as he sees this. God knows how to kill a party, doesn't he? And in verse 7... The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise man of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He calls for the wise men of Babylon. I was reading something the other day that there's like between 30 to 50 million people they believe that are involved in horoscopes, looking to the stars to direct their lives, looking to the creation rather than the creator. But what is really sad is that there are Christians, those who claim to be Christians, that will look to horoscopes to guide them. There are those who claim to be Christians that will look to tarot cards um, that direct their lives. Listen, as a Christian, you have no business being involved with horoscopes or tarot cards or any occultic things. We have the word of God to guide us. And behind those things, there are demonic spirits and there's deception and darkness. So keep that in mind. The Bible is very, very clear about that. And we're going to see that these guys are no help. And a horoscope and tarot cards are going to be no help to you. They are fake. Fake gods are no help, never were, and never will be. And the king says, whoever reads this, this handwriting, gives the interpretation, is going to be rewarded and become the third ruler in the kingdom. And as we read in verse 8, that now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. And the queen, because of the words of the king, and his lords came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians and astrologers, Chaldeans and soothsayers. In verse 12, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams and solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give 
the interpretation. The wise men of Babylon say, sorry, king, we cannot help you. We cannot read it or interpret the handwriting. You're on your own. I want to remind you again what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, that you beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, because in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I pray for all of us that we would really believe and take to heart that the Word of God is sufficient for us in our lives, that the Word of God is true for our lives in every area of our lives. And one of the lessons that we have learned is that there is a difference between the world's wisdom and man's wisdom and God's wisdom, God's wisdom which is true. Man's wisdom changes all the times. And you see it and you know that the things that people embrace, is, it's absolutely insane. It's crazy, isn't it? Changes all the time. God's word is true and it is for you and for me. So the queen comes out. It's not Belshazzar's wife, but his grandmother, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's widow or perhaps his daughter. She hears the turmoil that's going on, sees that Belshazzar's terrified. She says, don't be troubled. There's this Daniel whom in him is the spirit of God, an excellent spirit. This is 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. And she remembers him, how he ministered and interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And think about this. Daniel has been out of the public eye for over 20 years. or, And yet he's still remembered by the queen because he was different because he was different. And I pray that would be us. You know, one of the reasons why, for example, I like to pop in on the kids once in a while, because I want the kids to see me. I, I want them to kind of know that I'm just not the man behind the pulpit that teaches their, kid, their parents. So vacation Bible school last day, you know, I let them throw water balloons at me, you know, on water day. I don't particularly like it, but I let them do it because they're brutal. They're just, you know, and I come dripping wet, but they have fun and they just chase me around because I do know this, that they grow up. And I want them to know that Pastor Jeff has his light on. And when they go through the trouble and the difficulties and the loss and the pain and the confusion, I pray that they would know that they can come and see me. I have had those in my life, godly men, that are great examples of integrity, filled with the Spirit of God, still working in them. And I am so thankful that they're in my life. One of them I talked to the last couple of weeks, the West Bentley Far Reaching Ministries. And so blessed to talk with Wes and looking forward to having dinner with them next month. And we're going to go to Mexico in August. And, and him and Don McClure, the head of Calvary Chapel Association, Don McClure, the week that I got ordained as a pastor 30 years ago, he gave me a little talk and he said, you be in ministry for long term. So I can't wait to see Don and just be able to minister to the pastors there in Mexico. And as I talk with Wes, the ministry that he has in Sudan and there in Burma and in Afghanistan, he's helped extract 2,000 Christians out of Afghanistan, missionaries, 
It's amazing how God has used him. And he's a man of humility and a man of integrity. He's leaving tomorrow for Ukraine, being on the ground and helping with relief there. Pray for him. And I am grateful for these individuals that I can call, that I can talk with and can minister to me in a very powerful and in a godly way. But I want to remind you as we close here this morning of something that's very important for us to go to the Lord and ask for God's help. That, Lord, you help me to live for you. As you are living for Christ and walking with him, as you're growing in the word, you're not going to get invited to the world's parties. But you will be summons. You will be called eventually. You will be called to read the handwriting on the wall. But listen, you got to be consistent. You can't be living after the world, up and down. People wondering, are you really a Christian? Do they see in your life, day after day, week after week, month after month, they see that there's an excellent spirit that is in you because the same spirit working in Daniel is the same spirit that is in your heart, dwelling in your heart. Daniel is not heard of after Nebuchadnezzar dies over 20 years. We know that he kept praying because chapter 6 tells us that. I'm sure he's still ministering in some capacity behind the scenes. And he summons to come out and give the interpretation. And so will you. Because today, people's countenance is changing. And people's knees are knocking together. And they're wondering and they're wrestling and they may want nothing to do with you tomorrow. When things are good, they'll ignore you, might even mock you for days, for weeks, even for years. But then crisis comes because the rain and the storms come into all of our lives. It rains on the just and the unjust, Jesus said. The doctor's report says that I have cancer. I've lost a loved one. My teenager is in big trouble. And it is at those times and oftentimes they will call you because they see an excellent spirit in you. And they need truth and they need comfort, they need compassion. And they need to hear the handwriting, the interpretation that is on the wall. Do they see an excellent spirit in us? Knowledge and understanding. A heart of compassion. Are you ready? Are you continuing to just grow and be in prayer? And you'll be amazed. As you say, Lord, help me to be ready, to be used. Of the divine appointments that you will have. You won't get invited to the party, but you will be summoned, and people will come to you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you as we begin to look at this. <clears throat> How, Lord, it just speaks to our hearts, and I believe everyone here, we want to have that excellent spirit. We do. We have the Holy Spirit of God to work in us and through us. And we know that being a witness to others, it's not just the words we speak, but our actions, our behavior.
our purity, and our faith. Help us to be an example of that. And Father, I pray as we get ready to come to the communion table. Listen, the communion table is for the believers, not just if you're a member of Calvary Chapel. If you're a believer in Christ, the communion table is to remember what Jesus did for us and allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. But maybe you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus. Or you that are on line or perhaps on the radio later. That Jesus is your salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Who went and died for your sins, was put into a grave, and rose again after three days. That's what we're going to be celebrating here. Remembering in a couple weeks. He did it because of his love for you. Because we are lost sinners apart from him. In the work of the cross. And he tells us to repent and turn to him. And call out to him. Call in the name of Jesus. To ask for forgiveness. To have that personal relationship with Jesus. And if that means anything to you this morning. Today is the day of salvation. And you can pray right where you are. Sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I am a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I now turn to you. Ask for forgiveness. And that you're alive. And I call upon the name of Jesus for you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe you rose from the grave. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for the promise of eternal life to belong to a kingdom that will stand. And I do want to know you and walk with you. Grow in your love and in your word. It is in Jesus' name. For all of us here, that we would just be at awe as we take of the communion elements of this new covenant that we belong to based on the shed blood of Jesus, his broken body. So Lord, continue to minister to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.